Welcome back to Balter Beer Works and our Outdoor Knoxville Insider Podcast. If you're a history buff or you just want to know a little bit more about the dirt you're living on, this is the podcast for you. I'm sitting at Balter, a beautiful day here, with a map of the Siege of Knoxville, 1863 to 1864, showing the streets as they are today. Across from me is Dr. Joan Markle. She's the curator, Civil War curator, at McClung Museum of Natural History and Culture. She just so happens to be my neighbor as well. Nice to have you with us. Thank you, John. Let's set the scene for our viewers. They're so used to some insider places to go mountain biking or paddle boarding. We're gonna give them a dose of insider knowledge about the history of the streets they walk every day and the hills they see. And, and as we do that, I just wanna bring the clock back to 1861 when Tennessee as a state secedes from the Union. We saw a big, strong move on that part by Middle and West Tennessee, but in East Tennessee, not quite on board, Dr. Markle. No, East Tennessee was, actually, they, East Tennessee wanted to secede from the state of Tennessee, become its own state, and of course that wasn't going to happen. But of course West Virginia was able to do that later in the war, but we had uh, North Carolina and Virginia and then of course Kentucky. It was not geographically possible for Tennessee to become a unionist neutral or even a neutral location. So it's a conflicted place already in 61. Let's flash forward to 1863. Describe what the city of Knoxville looks like in 1863 and just to give our uh, listeners some perspective. This is after the Battle of Gettysburg that all of us have read about in our Civil War history. So already the country has been at war and really faced crisis after crisis and much bloodshed. The people of 1861 had no idea what they were getting into. Very few people did. William uh, Sherman, to William Tecumseh Sherman of, of the uh, fame later in the war, he was not a hero to many, but he was one of the few people in 1861 who saw what was coming. But all through the war, people kept thinking, okay, now it's almost over. Now it's almost over. So in the summer of 63, with the Battle of Gettysburg, Union victory, the falling of Vicksburg, which means that the Union took the Mississippi River, the Union was thinking, okay, this is about done. Well, then there is the Battle of Chickamauga, which is, of course, right close to where we live, which is Chickamauga, just a little south of Chattanooga. The Union Army loses badly. And the Confederates are buoyed up. They think, okay, things are going to turn again. And so here in East Tennessee, uh, things are... The, in early September, before the Battle of Chickamauga, we had a turn of power. Confederate troops that had been here the whole first half of the war, Simon Bolivar Buckner, General, goes to Chattanooga, marches out, takes all of his troops with him. They think everything's going to happen in Chattanooga. From Kentucky, well, from Ohio through Kentucky, General Ambrose Burnside, Union Army, comes down, bypasses Cumberland Gap, doesn't need to go that way, comes through Big Creek Gap, uh, basically takes a left of Kingston and comes into Knoxville. He has no opposition. He is greeted like a liberator. He believes everybody in Knoxville is a Union supporter. Well, that's because the Confederate supporters have left. So, in September of 63, 
well thoroughly held by the museum. The town is not large, though. Only about 4,000 civilians, right? That's right. Versus and how many troops, Union troops? Well, there about 20, there'll be about 20,000. And, of course, there have been an army in the town through the whole of the war. And this poor town is battered. Imagine having an extra 20,000 guys every day to feed three meals, to house the wagons, those metal-wheeled wagons, the mules, the horses, the streets are torn up, the fences, the chicken coops, everything's been used for fuel. Uh, and so this town is battered. The other thing you look at when you see pictures of this time is really no vegetation. It's all been right. burned out around the town. And why is that? That's a military, there is a military reason for well, that. Well, there's a, there's a military benefit. One of the things I've been interested in is the effect that the railroad had on the vegetation in the towns on the railroad line. They've been burning wood since 1855. And uh, when you think about uh, the coal boxes, throwing, shoveling coal into the trains to keep them running, that didn't happen until after the war. They are burning wood, and the wood is being burned at a huge rate. And all around the town, that, be, that is impacting the vegetation. However, when you look at the pictures, and we are so beautifully documented with photographs of Knoxville at that time. Yeah, the trees are gone. It is a military advantage. The ones that were left were probably cut down on purpose. You can see them coming better That's if right. you don't have any trees. You don't want somebody to give, give somebody a good tree to hide behind. So let's focus on a couple of points of interest. You understand sort of the background from Dr. Markle's explanation. In 1863, let's focus on Armstrong Hill. This is a place that's on the south side of the river, sort of marked by the KUB tower there, but uh, Legacy Parks Foundation was instrumental in helping save some key property there that has a gorgeous overlook of the town. Absolutely. That property was, when I first heard of it, it was going condo. And uh, for the, 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 as luck would have it, the bottom fell out of the mortgage market, the property went back on the market, it was purchased. and. For, by Legacy Parks to preserve and maintain. It is beautiful Tennessee woodlands, but it has also this incredible historical relay. Let's talk about what happened there, because you can right. go walk this ground. What Take yes. us through what, what was so significant. On November the 25th, there was a battle. The soldiers called it the Battle of Armstrong Hill. It's not famous, it's not well documented, but there was an Ohio regiment. 103rd Ohio. These guys were pretty much green troops. A lot of them came after Burnside had made his original. They came down through Cumberland Gap. They came down from Morristown on the train. They are uh, billeted on the south side of the river and they've never been into battle. They are matched against some of the very best, most seasoned veteran troops of the south on the November the 20th. These troops, as you mentioned, had been through Gettysburg, some of them. They just fought in the Battle of Chickamauga, and they're really coming up Kingston Pike toward campus, if you were to look at it in modern day. Kingston Pike is exactly where it was in 1863. That's the route. You think of, think of Longstreet. He is the general in charge. He's, Longstreet was known as Robert E. Lee's old war horse. He sent I. Lee to Chattanooga, basically, or to Chickamauga, and then to Chattanooga. He, this is, these are troops that are the best of the best Confederate assault troops. They think of them coming up I-75, 
he follows the train tracks, and in some cases he had to follow the train tracks because they didn't have any map. So if you're a betting man or woman, your money is basically on the Confederates just because they're so experienced, but the Union troops had the benefit of the high ground. They do. And so the, the plan, there's a battle out at Campbell Station. Actually, and just a note, it took 11 days to get everybody from Chattanooga to Sweetwater. This is the, the original plan was that Longstreet was going to race up here, element of surprise, take back Knoxville and go back to Chattanooga. Well, no element of surprise. When you have to take 11 days. Plus, when they got to the Tennessee River at Loudoun, the bridge was burned. All the first half of the war, the Union was trying to get down here and burn that bridge. The bridge burners wanted to burn that bridge in 61. The Confederates themselves burned the bridge on the way to Chattanooga. So when the Confederates decided they needed to come back north, no bridge. They actually hauled the pontoon bridge. So they put a pontoon bridge at Huff's Ferry. Their troops got over the river at Huff's Ferry. They came up through Campbell Station, where there was a battle. Basically what happened with Campbell Station is the Confederate troops that had been dispersed along the rail line were heading back to Knoxville. Grant, who was now in Chattanooga, and that's another whole story, he and Burnside agreed that Burnside's troops are going to be used as bait to lure the Confederates back to Knoxville. Grant says to Burnside, keep Longstreet away. I can take care of business in Chattanooga and then I'll send relief to you. So that was the plan. If if Campbell Station had gone differently, if, for instance, and we were talking about the south side of the river, Longstreet did not have his cavalry. His cavalry, General Wheeler, had tried to take the town from the south. They missed. That was on the 14th, 15th of November. They were not there. They were not the eyes and forward advanced scouts that Longstreet needed to know exactly where the Union was. The Union got to Campbell Station first. They took the road, they held the road, and they were able to, in an artillery battle, basically get the Union troops onto Kingston Pike in the downtown. And this battle on Armstrong Hill uh, results in what? It, it is, is it a pitched battle? How many losses are there? Actually, the Union lost many more soldiers there than they did the battle of uh, Fort Sanders, which came, uh, let's see, four days later. On the south side of the river, if you've ever been over there, and you absolutely should go over there, it's beautiful. The trails that are now available are just, it's, it's, a, it's a fine place even without this history. But it's also straight up, straight down, ravines, tangles of vines and, and trees. And on the south side where the Cherokee condominiums are, there is Confederate artillery. The Union artillery furthest west is it's going to be Fort Hayward. And between there is a sharp ravine. And then there it goes up again on the, right on the river's shore. And that's the bluff property. But down, down between the Cherokee condominiums and the bluff property, there's another water, another small stream. There's cabin. There's some crops. And that's where the battle starts. The Confederates come down from the heights. And they push these green Union troops from Ohio and some from Kentucky, and there was another regiment. Doesn't come to mind right now. Anyway, these guys push the green Union troops so that their back is basically, they're going to have to go down a hill. And anyway, these Ohio troops, they don't even know who we should be ordered. The 103rd, somebody, probably a private, said, let's go, boys. They counterattacked. 
They push the Confederates back down into the, the valley and then up the other side. The artillery, the Confederate artillery, there, it was a man, it was a, this, this was artillery from Virginia, and it was called the Boy Battery because the average age was 16 of these guys. Unbelievable. Anyway, all of these young guys, new er, troops that had not fought before, there's a pitched battle. If the Confederacy could get on the riverside of those knobs, these beautiful knobs you can still explore today, the knobs that became Fort Stanley, Fort Dickerson, Fort Higley, if the Confederate could push their troops behind those on the riverside, they would have been able to take the heights and take the town. It would have been all over on the 25th. The Union held. And four days later, there's a battle at Fort Sanders. And we let's move, and we do know about that, but I want, for our listeners who don't, let's, let's talk a little bit about that because it was really kind of in the neighborhood of Children's Hospital, where it is now, and right. Fort Sanders Hospital. Right. Um, what goes on there? Because there is a big fortification there. Oh, Fort, that, the biggest fortification on the line is Fort Sanders, named for William P. Sanders. He is a man who was born in Kentucky. He went to Mississippi and was appointed to West Point. He and Orlando Poe, Orlando Poe is the engineer who designed and installed all of these Union fortifications. They find uh, themselves here together in Knoxville. And Sanders uh, was asked by Burnside to hold back the Confederate troops that were coming in, coming down Kingston Pike. So Sanders holds, and his line is basically where Second Presbyterian Church is right now, right across from Crescent Bend. Because they're they're lobbing, they're trying to lob artillery from that area, the Crescent Bend area, and maybe even Sorority Village onto exactly. uh, onto what is Children's Hospital. It sounds weird to talk about it in those terms, but just to orient you, if you're thinking about the way the city looks now, that's how the battle set up. The Confederates were there, the Union troops trying to hold on. Right. The, the Fort Sanders, we have beautifully detailed, accurate maps from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Not just the one that we all know about. A recent one has turned up with the sight lines and distances by the actual surveyors who, who drew up this map. And they pinpoint Fort Sanders. And basically, 17th Street, Laurel, and Highland. Right in that area. So up there at the top of that hill, the, the, first of all, the Confederates are going to try to pound that area with artillery. They actually hit UT, where the uh, Ayers Hall is now. There is uh, Union artillery there, too. And uh, so the morning of the 29th, it's called At First Light, uh, they decide that it is time to take the town by direct assault. For 10 days, they've been trying to starve the Union out, the Confederates have been. And a fascinating story is that because they had inaccurate maps and they really didn't trust the local citizens, people like J.G.M. Ramsey are saying, look, the two rivers come together just east of Knoxville. you got to protect both rivers. And Longstreet said, no, i got a map. i got a map. No. That other river comes in to the west. So he is not protecting French Broad. So at night, on rafts, quietly under the cover of darkness, Sevier County, heavily pro-Union, is sending food in. Now the soldiers were hungry. There's no doubt that Burnside's guys were hungry, but they probably would not have starved. But even if that had been the plan, 
Burnside, uh, I'm sorry, Longstreet gets orders from Chattanooga. He says, attack now and come back and help me. These are from, these orders are from Braxton Bragg. And he's repelled. How, how many troops die in that, in that battle? Oh, it was awful. It was a bloodbath. 4,000 troops, Confederate troops, are massed at the base of the hill. There's something called a sector without fire. If you think about artillery, there's an arc. So the plan was to keep get as many troops as close to the hill as possible, charge up the hill. Most of the guys didn't even load their rifles. It's a bayonet charge. They expected hand-to-hand combat. They run into wire, telegraph wire, low down, strung stump to stump, dirty tricks. This is something that was not, made, it might have been used at, um, uh, out at Vicksburg. I'm trying to research that. I think that that may have been the first use, but this is one of the very early uses. And there's this great quote that says, it would take a treacherous Yankee mind to think of something like this telegraph wire, which translates to, okay, we might be coming to kill you, but tripping is just rude. You just don't trip, right? <laughs> so they trip. They fall into the ditch. The ditch is twice as deep as they think it is. This is almost a moat. At the bottom of the ditch to the top of the parapet, which has also been, re- been reinforced with cotton bales, it's 20 feet in some places. It's iced. Weather... Uh, some of the reports say that they poured water over, but even if they didn't, it would naturally did rain. So these poor guys with bayonets, some of them are using their bayonets to dig handholds and footholds. They pile on top of each other on their shoulders, trying to get over the top. The reward, and you see the basic physics of it, was they were going to overwhelm the firepower of the fort with enough bodies that they would take it by numbers. But they couldn't get enough numbers to the top of the fort. The reward to getting the top of the fort was get head blown off or to get hit in the head with an axe. And there's another story about a guy who stuffed his ramrod into his rifle and it would, or his musket, it, wouldn't, it couldn't work. So he was just using it like a club. So in the span of 20 minutes, there are 813 casualties for the Confederates. Inside the fort, there are five killed and eight wounded. That's 13 to 813. It just shows that brilliant engineering is just key in the victory. We have just a few minutes left, but we've described a couple of places that for history buffs, um, they know and, and know pretty well. What is one spot in Knoxville that you would like to send people to walk around or see that that will give them also an, another flavor of this time in our history? Well, Fort Dickerson is an absolutely beautiful and it's at the top, you can see, and there, there are early letters that say you can see Cumberland Gap, and I thought, well, surely that's not possible anymore, but it is, it is, on a clear day, and there are some. Uh, this is also on the south side of the river, there's a quarry there. Absolutely, it's a beautiful city park, it's been city land, I think it was donated in the 30s and then was improved, but the fort itself, the earthwork, now when we say fort, Civil War forts are, they don't look like Fort Apache, they don't look like castles. They are moved dirt, earthworks. Plus, if they're authentic, they're now 150 years eroded moved dirt. So you have to appreciate the story. But Fort Dickerson is very well interpreted. The Knoxville Civil War Roundtable, I'll give them a plug. They, they meet every month, first Tuesday of every month. Wonderful speakers, but they've also taken on the responsibility for years and years now of keeping the trails clear, interpreting their reproduction cannons that have been installed, plus the view from up there of the city. When you look at this map that we're looking at from the south side of the river, and you're standing up here looking at the map, 
and you look back at the city, you can see. You can see the downtown. You can see the heights where the university is. Uh, it's, it's, it's a combination of Google Earth and maps and photographs and just geography, historic overlay on geography that makes it fascinating. If people want to get a hold of the map that you and I are looking at, it's created by Charles A. Reeves. Junior, back in 2010, it's called yes. A Map of the Siege of Knoxville. What is the, what's the best way? Can they get it at the McClung Museum? Yes, we sell it at the McClung Museum gift shop, and uh, we've been sell, we originated this map for the sesquicentennial for the, from 2011 to 2015. Those were the 150-year anniversary years of the war. So uh, I, this map is just, to me, a, a, it's, it is so much fun to Take where you know where you are, and you look down on the map, and you see Civil War all around you. In closing, Dr. Markle, we've we've talked about the broad picture before the siege of Knoxville. We've talked about places people should go. When we pull back our lens again and look at the significance of East Tennessee in Civil War history, what should people remember or know about that? Well, it took Tennessee, East Tennessee, 150 years to come to the point where it's been really willing to re-examine this awful, traumatic neighbor against neighbor, father against son, brother against brother trauma. It was awful. And East Tennessee has done an excellent job of putting it in the past. However, I think now that people are fascinated with what that past was, how we can grow up here and not know this incredible story. And there are so many people like me who come from elsewhere and are amazed to find out the depth of the history here. And it also shows what happens when we can't figure out how to compromise, give, take, get along. Dr. Markle, pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. She is fantastic. She's with the McClung Museum of Natural History and Culture, the curator in the Civil War section. And uh, stop by her office or make an appointment because she will, uh, as she has here, just really fill you with all kinds of things you never knew about the Civil War and its impact in East Tennessee. We appreciate you tuning in for our Balter Beer Works Fed podcast, the Insider Knoxville, the Outdoor Knoxville Insider Podcast. Thanks for catching us this week. We'll see you next week as well. Again, Balter Beer Works, a great host and. You can find more about Legacy Parks if you follow us on social media. At Legacy Parks is what you need to dial in on your phone. And also, please jump on and uh, rate our podcast. Give us, uh, give us a tweet or at least a listen or two and a share. We'll catch you next time. Keep charging.